Here's a few words with Jesse Bond of Southwest Fire Academy. Hey, man. Hey, buddy. How you doing? Good. Tell me what's coming up. Yeah, so we've got a few courses coming up. We have a surface water rescue course coming up May 12th to 14th. Firefighter Survival and RIT, which will be May 15th to 19th. Trench Rescue with Cesarski, June 5th to 9th. Pump Ups, June 13th start date. And then uh, some Beyond the Academy courses with Brass. We got Machine Rescue Technician, which will be June 9th to 11th. And then we're going to be running our first Advanced Forcible Entry course with Live Fire, which will be July 8th and 9th. True North Fools are going to be at Southwest Fire Academy September 29th, 30th, and October 1st. So I don't think there's registrations open yet, but I'm sure they'll be out soon. Hello, everyone. Welcome to episode 64 of Multiple Calls. I'm Scott Hewlett. If you can't perform a 360 size up on yourself and won't go interior to eliminate the problems and rescue the good because it's dark and uncomfortable, then what truly separates you from anyone else? How exactly are you the type of person that fights what other people fear? And if you're actually not, then how do you get there? Self-reflection that leads to self-awareness is the first step that reaps huge benefits at no cost. You don't even need to try and change what you think about when you reflect. Just noticing how you think and feel about what you think and feel is powerful. Noticing that you are highly judgmental and hypercritical and how you react to it, and then desiring to change that to simply being curious and non-judgmental, is a massive leap forward. You don't have to go anywhere, talk to anyone, or employ any special techniques. Continue to do what you've always done, with this slight difference. Even the smallest deviation held over time results in a completely different outcome. What is almost imperceptible eventually becomes undeniable. Here's my chat with Steve Higgins. So why don't you start by telling me where you grew up and give me a little history on your family dynamic and your structure growing up. I grew up in Burlington, Ontario. Later on in life, I spent a little bit of time in Hamilton and Mississauga, but mostly growing up was Burlington, usually east end of Burlington, and that's where I spent my time. And how was your family set up? Family structure. I had two older brothers. I was the youngest of three and my older brothers are four years and six years older. Things were pretty normal growing up for the first little while. Pretty happy kid, pretty happy adult still. And around 92-ish, my dad specifically was hit pretty hard with the recession, lost his job. And I didn't fully understand that, how much of an impact that had on our family until much later in life. So kind of had the rug ripped out from under him. I remember the repossession of a car late in the middle of the night, which I really didn't fully understand at about eight years old. His company car, gone, towed away. And they literally got locked out. You hear about people getting locked out. And uh, again, as I was younger, I didn't really fully understand that. No employees knew about the shutdown. They show up for work Monday morning. That's it, yeah. Doors locked, game over. You're not getting paid anymore. That was his whole life. He kind of bought and sold and dealt with franchises for Wendy's and Tim Hortons and was the main kind of breadwinner for the family. And unfortunately, that sparked a spiral of a combination of trying to find employment, being pretty specific 
in that world that was kind of dying. The franchise world's kind of dying at that time, plus the recession. Started drinking and it, it spiraled into alcoholism, marital problems, and just a, a whole gong show at home growing up from there. Yeah, a lot of stress and then trying to cope and manage. Yeah. With not maybe a lot of support and resources. But yeah, my two older brothers are awesome. I forgot to mention there as well. There was another brother in the picture. So technically, I guess I have three older brothers. He passed away quite young before my time. I should know these numbers, but I can't remember exactly. But he would have been months, like months old. Just in terms of the family dynamic, even between my my parents alone. Looking back, I don't know how. I don't know how they did it. (laughs) I see friends with uh, three kids and I'm like, I don't know what you're doing. And your grandparents were around quite a bit. And you mentioned a good friend in their family. Yeah, had a really good friend growing up and spent a lot of time at their place. And their family was awesome. It was the type of place you could drop in and hang out just about any time. And yeah, we spent a lot of time together and they were, they did have a significant impact growing up when things got really rough. If we wanted to go there or sleep over or whatever, at a moment's notice, it was no problem at all. My mom and I or whoever, we could drop in and stay over and it was never a big deal. It was a, a really good relationship in that terms. And whose cottage was it up in Tobermory that you'd spend time at? We used to rent a cottage on Miller Lake for a week every summer. Really, really awesome time. And again, got to know my my grandparents on my mom's side really well up there. Lots of fishing, lots of swimming, lots of my older brother stressing out. My parents would take try to take an inflatable raft across the lake and uh, sometimes throw a life jacket and parents would be freaking out. But that was a really cool place to go. Every summer, we look forward to it, just getting up there, getting away. And how did you and your brothers bond and sort of help each other through all those struggles? What distracted you? What did you guys get involved in? And Mainly for myself and I guess most of, and my middle brother, I guess, a lot of skateboarding and BMX riding growing up. We hung out a fair bit at home, but as things kind of got a bit messier, I found we kind of did our own things. We were still there for each other, maybe not as much as we should have been, but they had their licenses a lot earlier than I did. So if they needed to go, they could just go either hitch a ride or grab a car and leave. Whereas I was kind of confined to a skateboard or a bike or my feet. But yeah, we definitely bonded through skateboarding and biking. Music was a big one. Both my older brothers play guitar and drums. I played the drums growing up, which was pretty fun outlet to jam together. And we still jam together a couple times a year type thing. Other than that, just... I don't know. My older brother, very into mechanics. He was a mechanic for a while growing up and he used to have an old CJ Jeep that he would work on. So he kind of got me interested in working on things, wrenching on things and seeing him just cut stuff off, put new stuff on, weld stuff, bolt stuff. It was kind of neat. My dad wasn't super handy. So it was neat to see that. And it definitely, I don't know, got me interested in more of a mechanical aptitude side of life and fixing things and like just fixing my own vehicles and stuff now is a big part of our life. The recognize a problem, fix a problem or yeah. the, the make a problem, fix a problem. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Literally, literally yesterday I had to ratchet strap the fuel tank back on my truck. <laughs> nice. <laughs> yeah. Your older brother had his struggles late in his he teens did. on top of everything. He got mixed up, unfortunately, with some bad apples, if you will, growing up who didn't have the best interest of themselves or himself, kind of got caught up with them, multiple incidents. He had some some run-ins with police and he kind of usually skated by okay. Some of his friends didn't make out as well and ended up incarcerated. He very much so struggled with depression and drinking himself. 
it got to the point where he wasn't doing well. I don't think we necessarily knew how bad it was. I think my parents had an idea because they were doing some therapy with them. And I'm sure it helped a little bit, but obviously you can only help so much. But it got to the point where he, he did take an attempt on his life. It was very, very serious. And he, he almost died, plain and simple. He had to have plastic surgery to repair the damage that he did. And just seeing your older brother go through that and going to the hospital at a a young age and just trying to figure out the why behind it, which there is none. Like there is, but there isn't, as you know, but I was super angry at him and yeah, it was difficult. And the more I learned, and especially just as I got older, kind of started to put the pieces together and it started to make a more logical story. But again, being young, trying to figure that out was tough. And to my knowledge anyway, none of my friends were going through that. So there's not a lot of people to lean on. Like, hey, I got this going on at home. What are you doing? Right. <laughs> it's like, uh. Yeah, and I think even just like fire calls that you're in it. And yeah. then even though if you make sense of it later, you still went through the experience in the moment of what it was. So it still has that lasting impact on you that you have to process and work through and manage. So something even more intense like that within your own inner circle and your families. Even though you make sense of it later on, it's really hard to process and work through what was laid down through yeah. the experience in the moment. Absolutely. That was a, a big kind of game changer, I think, in general for our family. I think it ultimately drew my brother and I closer, just trying to understand that, trying to support him and just, I guess, figure out how he got there and how to help. That's easier said than done. But we've had some really good open conversations. He got me into the outdoors and camping and stuff, like hands down. And we had a really good kayak trip last May. Just him and I, it was awesome. Way back out in some crown land, had some really good heart to hearts. And he opened up about some stuff that I was either too young or had no idea that happened in our house and that he unfortunately had to experience. And there was a point where things kind of got partially violent and he vowed like, I'm, I'm going to protect the other two brothers. Like that's my role. And I appreciate that, but I wish he didn't have to go through that, obviously. So that was a, a tough one growing up. Again, he had a lot, of, a lot of police interactions just from hanging out with the wrong people. I can laugh about it now, but he didn't come home for those four or five days one day, which wasn't unusual. My mom had the patience of a saint, but the phone finally rang and she's like, where are you? <laughs> he's like, Alberta. Wow. <laughs> she didn't, I remember hearing her. She didn't freak out or anything. She's like, when are you coming home? What do you need? What do you want us to do? Very supportive and just realizing, I think that was another realization that this isn't her little boy anymore. He's figuring things out and this is part of his figuring out. He went on a, uh, a scouts or a rovers, which was like a, yeah. a thing of scouts back in the day. I don't know if they still have it, but he went climbing out in like Calgary, Alberta area and had a blast, like fell in love with rock climbing pretty early age. So I think that's, that was one of the reasons he went back out there, but he went out with a nefarious friend. Long story short, his friend tried to commit a crime out there without his knowing. Essentially they stopped to get gas. His friend went in to pay. And uh, came screaming out and said, we got to go. Start the car. Yeah. And he had no idea. And that was the turning point of, I got to get out of here. So next stop, he said, I'm going my own way. You get, you figure it out. And then called my dad and they were able to fly him home. But I think 
it was a few few things in terms of our family. One that he needs to figure things out, and two, he kind of realized that maybe my friends aren't my friends. Right. Real <laughs> turning point. Don't have my best interest. Yeah. He kind of paved the way. I joke around like there's nothing my middle brother or I could have done to top him. Like he he won. He just won hands <laughs> down. If we got into a bit of trouble, my parents were like, "Yeah, whatever. Right. We're dealing with on this. the scale of things." Yeah. <laughs> So it was good for us. We were pretty good kids. Like we didn't mess around too much, but he had a go and it made growing up interesting. That's for sure. And your mom was a real mainstay then of holding this all together. Obviously my, my dad lost his job and really struggled to get back in the workforce and make any sort of meaningful living to support the life that they had created. So we started working odd jobs at like a computer sales at like a computer store and really entry level jobs that a kind of a 18 year old would get unfortunately. So struggling to make ends meet, their relationship wasn't good. We had to move a number of times just to downsize to a smaller house, something they could afford. My mom worked as a secretary growing up. They were struggling to make ends meet, struggling to figure out what they were going to do. And then tied in with the alcohol, it, it just became a really bad scene. But again, my mom was very, very creative in that problem solution. Here's the problem. What do we do? Okay. We got to find the cheapest housing possible in Burlington. Where is that? Okay. It's over here. That's where we're going. Just stuff like that. And you went with the flow. I don't ever remember dragging our feet as siblings too much of like, oh man, we got to move. Like it was just kind of like, okay, this is serious. This is what we need to do. And that came from her. She instilled that in us. Like, again, this is the problem. We need to find a solution. As a family. Yeah. And then you had a really hard phone call. Things were kind of eroding on and off with my mom and dad. And they told us they were getting a divorce or separation. I can't remember what it was at the time, but essentially splitting. I probably would have been early 20s, I guess. Actually, no, sorry. It was late high school. And honestly, at that time, none of us were surprised. And it was when they told us they were really trying to beat around the bush and we're like, thank God. <laughs> we're like, yes, this needs to happen. And we were all pretty good. Like it was upsetting, but we were all pretty good with it. And things weren't good for a long time. So we got it. The relationship between my brothers and my dad kind of eroded over that time. The drinking from essentially that recession on in 92 got pretty bad. And pre-separation, you know, my mom kicked him out a bunch. Like it just wasn't a good scene. But we tried to, or at least I tried to repair my relationship with him, just getting together for coffee, stuff like that. He was living in different places and ended up moving in with his mom in Toronto, which I can't even imagine at whatever he would have been, early fifties, like moving in with your parents. Like that's got, I don't care where you're at. That's, that's a tough, tough thing to do. I was working as a diver at the time and I got an early morning phone call just saying he had been hit by a car in Toronto likely gonna pass but not sure basically get over here so that was tough it was just so quick and not expected like literally i just i remember it was the worst (laughs) worst basement apartment i've ever lived in in mississauga and phone rang and it was super early morning and how is this happening yeah yeah and you and your brothers though had just seen him we were lucky like we had some big gaps in visits um and we had just seen him about a week prior and it was a good visit was try to take positives out of things. That was a positive for sure. At least having a bit of peace that we had just seen him, had a decent visit rather than, well, I haven't heard from him in three months type thing. But yeah, it was just a quick, 
literal snap of the fingers phone call, game over. How were things academically for you through all this? How did you manage in school? School was pretty good. At that time was was high school. Going through the majority of it, I guess, was high school. My mom was pretty firm that we take advanced courses to try to open up options in college and university and stuff, which was fine up until like grade 11. And then things for me got hard with some of the math and science, some tough teachers. I did okay. I wasn't a straight A student, but I did okay. I held my own and the odd honor roll here and there. Yeah, it worked out okay. I was always pretty interested in school. In hindsight, I probably should have gone to a more technical school. It was a very academic school. But my mom had had us in and out of the public school system, wasn't happy with it. So we flopped over to Catholic school for a while. You mentioned diving there briefly. So walk me into how you got into that. Ass backwards. (laughs) I had a pretty good idea that I wanted to get into some sort of emergency service or high level team, whether it was military. I had my eye on firefighting, but was also not ruling out paramedicine or a police officer or even like Coast Guard. I was leaning towards firefighting and towards the end of high school, you have to start making your applications. You're visiting with guidance counselors and stuff like that. And that was the career that I kind of researched and started to become more and more interested in. I met with a guidance counselor. He pretty well abruptly said, uh, he said, you're too small. He said, you need to think of something else. (laughs) And in hindsight, I was like, I can't even believe you would tell a student that. Wow. But Maybe it was a roundabout way, like he was motivating me and didn't know it. I don't know. But I was very interested in firefighting. And towards the end of high school, again, had to apply to college. My parents said, unfortunately, we can't help you out with any money, which was totally fine. I expected to pay for it anyway. But essentially, I had a a missing spot on an application. And you had to, I don't know if it's changed, but you had to pay for so many spots per application. So I'm like, I'm not going to waste this spot. I paid for it. I was always told anybody I ever talked to growing up who was a firefighter talked about how tough it can be getting on, make sure you have a backup plan. So within that application, I had some, some fire, I had some paramedic and I had an empty spot and I came across, I was looking at different trades. I was looking at electrical and plumbing and stuff like that. And I came across this commercial diving course at Seneca and started looking into it and reading about it. I'm like, this sounds pretty cool and somewhat transferable skills. So I ended up setting up an appointment with the main course facilitator at Seneca, went and met him. He was extremely strict, no BS kind of guy, which I appreciated. Showed me around the school real quick and basically said, you have a few days to make a decision. We have a spot and you can start almost right away. Like once the semester was coming up in a month or two. So I looked at the school and looked at the career and I was like, okay, this seems pretty cool. Pretty good backup plan kind of interesting, never really heard of it. And when I was leaving the office, I was like, do I need equipment? Like, is this just mask and snorkel? Like, what do I need for this? And she's like, oh, I almost forgot to give you this equipment list. And it was like 15,000 plus of equipment. I was like, oh my God, how am I going to pay for this? Well, that you had to supply for yourself. (laughs) So went home, I was pretty jacked up. And I don't know, like a lot of things in my life, once I see it, I'm like, okay, we're going all in. My mom was pretty supportive. This is before my dad had passed away and he was not supportive. He's like, what are the job opportunities? And good questions. Like, what are the job opportunities? Like, what do you know about this career? Where does this lead? And anyway, he was not supportive, but I like my older brother, I was going to do it anyway. But to get back to your question, it was basically an empty spot on an application. 
which turned into about a five or six year career pre-fire. And what was the first exposure to fire? So you said at that point you were already considering it, but what put it in your mind? Like just the team dynamic, anything mechanical, like working with tools, stuff like that. The kind of aha moment for me was actually doing a, a work placement in Toronto with Toronto Fire. I don't know. I always enjoyed just working as a team and just a team dynamic where you have each other's backs and everybody there is there for the exact same purpose. You mentioned even just being exposed to a fire truck in like elementary school and like a school tour. And then they would come around to my buddy's school in like elementary school. They used to have a big kind of end of the year fair. Usually Burlington Fire would show up with a truck there and you get to tour it and stuff and go through it, which is pretty cool. And I remember going down to Spencer Smith Park and looking back again, we're pretty safe society now, but I was able to go up. You could do tower rides in the bucket. I couldn't, I couldn't even see out of the bucket, but you're looking through the grading in the floor and stuff. And I thought that was pretty cool. And just seeing the big trucks and just kind of these larger than life characters as a kid, that's what kind of drew me to it for sure. What about sports and hobbies as a kid? And how has your athletic life been? I guess like skateboarding and biking, but uh, as a kid, my middle brother and I, we played house league hockey growing up, played that for, I don't know, four or five years. It was fun. It was awesome. I, I enjoyed playing hockey and was fortunate to get back into it with the fire guys since I started with my current department, just playing pickup. I played lacrosse towards the end of high school. We didn't get very far. There weren't a lot of, of teams left in the community that actually still play lacrosse. They gave us an ultimatum. They said, you guys can, can keep training, keep practicing, and we have a tournament or we, the team can fold. And most of the guys had played their, their whole high school careers, and I guess they weren't interested. So the team folded. But yeah, other than that, just getting outside, playing basketball at the park type thing. Your dad took hockey pretty seriously. He, he did. He took hockey very seriously. Yeah, it wasn't unusual for him to get kicked out of a house league hockey game. He thought the ref was making all the wrong calls and stuff. I think he thought the ref was going to interfere with my NHL career, which uh, absolutely did not happen. <laughs> <laughs> and your brother was also a bit of a inspiration as far as like weightlifting. and. So my middle brother started working out probably towards the middle or end of high school, I guess. And he went to a gym just around the corner from where we were in Burlington. It's long gone. It was called N NRG Energy. And just saw him starting to work out and he started putting on some serious muscle and I was like, that's pretty cool. And I convinced him one day and he dragged me there and it was a really cool old school gym. I remember seeing the, the plaques on the wall of like the three, four and 500 pound bench press club, like some pretty, pretty old school dudes, but really kind of cut my teeth there. He kind of taught me how to work out and how to eat a bit better and Definitely, that stuck for the rest of my life. That's I still work out. Is that what sparked you wanting to take kinesiology as well? It did. Tried to kind of gear towards the end of high school into more kinesiology, physiology courses. And that sparked into a further interest in personal training and just health in general, which down the road sparked into actually a small business uh, out of our house running private personal training. But just doing lots of courses, even from high school to say five, six years ago on Olympic lifting, like program design, just general health stuff to kind of keep the body going. And the BMXing led into mountain biking and then the love yep. of the outdoors continued there. BMXing, it took a big, big gap in there somewhere, I guess, to go to school and work, but got back into mountain biking probably 
12 years ago. Some of the guys I was working with, with my first department, kind of showed me around the horseshoe area and I was just like, fell in love. I was like, oh man, like, why did I even stop biking? Like, this is unbelievable. Do you ride Steam Whistle? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. It's, there a, great, it's a great loop there. Copeland. They they cut my teeth in Copeland, which... That's a harsh place to... It is. <laughs> and I still like going in there. This is the first year that I probably didn't ride as much in there and rode more Simcoe stuff. It's up or it's down though, right? Oh yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But tons of fun. Tons of fun. Right. Awesome. You mentioned Muay Thai and Jiu-Jitsu. So I dabbled in both and I'm trying to get back into Jiu-Jitsu, just trying to find the time. Um, and I didn't the money do, and, <laughs> and the money, yeah, that's it. Yeah. I didn't do a ton of jujitsu kind of dabbled. My brother-in-law runs a, a pretty good gym and then some other guys have opened up in Aurelia recently and lots of guys from work. Like it's a popular thing right now. Obviously everybody's talking about it. I used to do a fair bit of just Muay Thai and kickboxing and not to, not to fight or compete just for fitness, but it was awesome. It just, all those disciplines are so humbling. Once you think you got it someone throws a wrench at you and you start all over again. And it's just this continual process of not knowing anything. <laughs> <laughs> you tried your hand at the combat challenge as well? I did. I had a lot of fun with that. And my first department, everybody was pretty jacked up to do it. And I was the only one who ended up competing. So I ran solo for the first few years. And then when I switched to my current department, they had a team, they're pretty organized. And yeah, we did, we had a really good team. They took some golds when I wasn't there and I have a couple silvers at home, but that was the other thing. I didn't want to just get into firefighting and sit on the couch type thing. Like I want to be fully involved right into it. And I remember seeing, I remember seeing the combat challenge on TV years ago and I was like, I want to try that. It looks hard. It looks fun. And it is both of those things, <laughs> as you know, Yeah. I remember showing up solo to I can't remember where we were competing. I think it was a bunch of guys from your department. Okay. But what the, years were you running? Do you remember? It would have been like 2010-ish okay. for probably three, four years. And then we stopped probably four or five years ago, I guess. But I remember some guys, I think from your department, and they were unbelievable, like helping me out of like, hey, have you ever done this before? I'm like, no. <laughs> like, okay, well, here's some tips for this. Here's yeah. some tips for that. Here's how you do the stairs. Here's how you drag your hand. It was awesome. And I remember doing the first one and it went well, felt okay. And finishing, it felt decent. I was like, I don't know what all the, all the fuss is about. People are throwing up and I was like, it's not that bad. And sure enough, like 20, 30 minutes later, dry heaving in a porta potty. <laughs> Caught up with you. <laughs> oh yeah. <laughs> some people it's right away and some people would take yeah. some time to set in. Yeah. We actually did a charity event last year for muscular dystrophy and just set up an ad lib course at our training facility. And uh, it was fun. It was tons of fun and kind of renewed. A lot of the guys said they are like, we should, we should get a team going again. And some of the new guys were interested and they they said they'd be interested in competing. So it's just tough to find the time for that. It's like, they need to do it indoors in the winter, <laughs> but summertime people are busy and you're biking and doing other things. Yeah. And it, if you do want to compete at like a competitive level, it's, it takes over your life. Yes. And then every weekend's a regional, it's a lifestyle, right? Like exactly. your whole family has to be a part of it. Yeah. Huge, huge commitment. And the other reason I guess I do kind of want to revisit it is through education and doing it and doing other sports. I feel like I have a much better understanding on how to train, how to prepare, but that doesn't mean you have to do it. Right. <laughs> or you don't have to do it at the highest level of True. that you can, you can 
<laughs> that's one of our problems, right? We always have to do everything to the nth degree. Yeah. It's like, well, why can't this be my 80%? Exactly. But yeah, I tried to stay active growing up. My oldest brother got me into rock climbing as well, which was pretty cool as a young kid. We'd go to like Rattlesnake Point and Mount Nemo and stuff like that. And caving, he took me in some crazy caves. <laughs> Before watching 127 hours, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Have you seen Touching the Void? Yes. Okay. I saw it years ago and then I actually just listened to the book literally maybe a month ago. Okay. It's a film I go back to regularly. It's so good. It's when such you a think you're having a hard story. life oh my God. and you're suffering and then you watch what he went through. It's like, uh, okay. <laughs> yeah. I hiked the Kloss Trail in Killarney last fall. We were talking about 127 hours and got home. Literally the day I got home, we were bagged and watched that. And I was just like, I knew the story, but when you're watching it and just seeing what actually happened, yeah. I'm just like, oh my God. You mentioned in the, the notes, wanting to get back to Ecuador and and bag some peaks there. So have you climbed mountaineered on that scale? Just playing around. We had the opportunity to go to South America probably four or five years ago. Did a phenomenal kind of backpacking trip through the country. We got to see the Galapagos Islands or some of them, I should say. And then at the end of the trip, I had some more time. My wife had to go back to work. So I stuck around for about 10 days and messed around on uh, a peak there called Chimborazo. Just wanted to see what it was all about, kind of see what, see what, how my body handled altitude and, and go from there. And it was a wicked experience. It almost went sideways in terms of acclimatization. I trusted the guy setting it up because he was Canadian, which turned out to be a big mistake. <laughs> the schedule we were on was like an express, express, express climatization. One of our guys has climbed a number of the seven summits. And I ended up getting back from an acclimatization run. I knew what was happening, but I was trusting this guy who said, hey, this is the schedule you need to you need to be on. And I'm like, well, my research is showing this, but okay, I'll take your word for it. Anyway, long story short, did a big run one day with huge, huge gain and ended up getting back, hiking back to town, back to my hostel. And by the time I got back to town, my head felt like it was in a vice, just going to blow up. I was like, oh man, I'm like, this isn't good. I know what's happening. And so it took a bunch of Tynol or Advil, took a nap and kind of, I can't remember if I wrote myself a note, but basically made myself a promise. Like if you wake up and feel like this, you have to go to the hospital. And I'm just there by myself at this point. But I ended up texting him through WhatsApp and just said, hey, this is what happened today. This is the schedule for the week. I don't think it's right. What do you think? And like capital letters when I woke up was like, do not do that again. <laughs> so we went back and forth with some text messages about what is a much safer approach and ended up acclimatizing much better throughout the week. And then summit day, I met the guide and you leave, I don't know, it was like midnight or something like that and start your run up. And it was a beautiful, it was an unbelievable night, like clear, not that cold stars, it was weird. You're meeting your guide for the first time, obviously language barrier, Spanish, but uh, really, really cool experience. I had been having some on and off like intestinal gut pain throughout the week. I think it was altitude related, but it was actually more just bowel related. So I was doing these runs, I was having this pain and it would take a long, long time. Even when I got back from altitude or came down to wherever we were staying, I knew that pain was going to last for another three hours. So that was in the back of my mind. I had another conversation with the organizer and I had some safety concerns about the gear they were bringing. 
So I ended up emailing another company and saying like, look, I'm in this position. We're supposed to summit in a couple of days. When you guys are on this mountain, what do you bring? And they sent me a list of stuff, which was kind of what I expected. Anyway, so kind of questioned the organizer said, hey, what's the deal? How come we don't bring this stuff? And he kind of gave me the roundabout answer. So all this stuff was in the back of my mind. So on summit day, we're hiking up, things are going great and had a great time and got up to about the peak of that mountain is I believe 62 or 6,300 meters. And we got up to around 58, which was what I was hoping to get to. Still felt good, but started having the gut pain and it was just him and I. And I also didn't want to be, if something happened to me, I didn't want him to have to deal with that or vice versa. If something happened to him, I would feel responsible getting him down. So all those things combined, I was like, you know what? I had a great experience. Nobody got hurt feeling I'm in pain, but feeling okay. And we just kind of stopped and hung out. We went up a bit higher and then stopped again and just kind of enjoyed the view. And I just turned to him and I was like, I think I'm good. He's like, really? I was like, yeah. I'm like, this has been awesome, awesome journey, awesome way to learn. But thinking of this pain, I was like, how far do you think we are from summiting? And he's like, maybe five, six hours. I'm like, okay, five, six hours up. It's going to be at least that getting back down and come down a bit quicker. But I was like, I don't want to, I don't want to push this. I told my wife I'd come home in one piece. <laughs> it's got to be super common in the climbing community where people, guides don't always know what's going on with the people they're guiding, right? They must sure. be like, well, I'll just, I'm here. It's the money. Yeah. It's the, it's my opportunity. They must just ignore and lie to themselves. And yeah. that's probably when problems happen, right? So yeah. good of you to have that self-awareness and not push it. Yeah. It was a, a really cool experience. Uh, learned a ton and then, yeah, I'd love to go back. There's like two or three other main peaks there and volcanoes that you can kind of start on and work your way back up to Chimborazo. But yeah, I really want to go back and play around and just kind of see what it's all about to finish it. You mentioned your mom and obviously your brothers being sort of mentors, guides in their own way. Your grandfather as well was a pretty strong influence on you. It was always a treat to go see. We always call them Nana and Papa, but my mom's parents, they were just super nice, super generous. He had a hilarious just demeanor about him, like always sarcastic. It's funny. I was talking to my brother's a few years ago, maybe more than that now. But anytime we showed up at their house, he would always be at the front door and they lived in Caledon East and he'd say, G'dadia. And for my entire life, I thought that was a word. <laughs> G'dadia. I thought this was a word from another language or something. And finally, I just, he said it so fast for years, but we were laughing about that, but they were always fun to hang out with. He was always tinkering. He always had lawn boy lawnmowers, like four or five of them in the garage and he had a gas powered airplane, like a remote control airplane, but nothing like the modern stuff you see now. And he'd be trying to get that thing going and fly in the background and crash into the house. And, and then he had a, uh, a very well-known green three horsepower Johnson motor that would come up to Miller Lake with us and usually die or mess up, but he was always working on it. Always had that thing apart, working on it, trying to keep it going. And I think one of the last few years heading up to the, the cottage, like everybody agreed. They're like, we have to rent a motor. <laughs> we're like, we're not, we want to actually go fishing. Let's just rent a motor. <laughs> and you're a big Bruce Lee fan. It's funny. I remember discussing that with you. Yeah. I did a project on him in, in high school. It was about something to do with role models or mentors and just found his story just fascinating. 
like just the adversity that he overcame and really, really made a name for himself in a place where he wasn't always welcome. I found it very inspiring growing up. Like pre-Goggins. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Pre-Goggins and Jocko. And yeah. 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 So we talked about your diving, but maybe just walk me through from beginning of your sort of employment history and your careers and the jobs you did before the fire service. Early, early, like probably most kids my age had paper route, obviously didn't pay very well. When they split things into half cent increments, you know, you're not getting paid well. But yeah, paper route. And then uh, I worked at Arby's for a while, which is a dying place. But that was fun. That was a fun job. And in high school, I kind of followed my, my middle brother had literally all these jobs, paper route, Arby's. And then we both worked at a lumberyard, which was awesome. Learned a ton about construction, met some really, really cool people. One, I'd say me, I guess two of those, but one for sure, we're still really good friends. And that's where we met. Awesome dude. And he was my boss growing up, which was kind of funny, but yeah, lumberyard, like very physical job and put in a ton of hours there, even actually worked there when I started my diving career, I would come back if we had the weekend off and work there on weekends just to make some more money. But from there went to college for diving. They had a co-op program at the time where you were given contacts to companies and you had to set it up, but you had two weeks. And the idea was to do a week with one company, a week with another company. But the funny thing was it was optional and I couldn't believe it, but I would say at least half the class was like two weeks off. I'm not going to co-op, I would go to co-op. And my mindset was from what I had heard and again, researched, it can be extremely hard to get a job. So you kind of need to make a name for yourself up front because they're hiring somebody off the street to do what is very, can be a very dangerous job. So they want to make sure you know what's going on. Sorry, so this is for diving? This is for diving, yeah. sorry, diving. I ended up co-oping with, with one of the main companies that I ended up having a career with. So I did a week with them and then he said, I'd love to keep you for another week, but we don't have anything next week. But he goes, I'm going to send you to essentially my friend's company, which was in Toronto. They both worked out of Toronto. So I ended up working with them just by fluke, about halfway into the second week, they had a ship come in from, I can't remember where it came in from. It came in from overseas and they had smashed their propeller. And he's like, it's up to you. He goes, you don't have to do this. But he goes, if you want, he goes, I can give you an extra, like whatever, the end of the week, like four days of work and I'll pay you. And I'll pay you like time and a half. I was like, Awesome. So got some really, really good experience helping those guys out and, and getting to see like some ship husbandry stuff, like taking care of actual real ships and like kind of what I was getting into. So that was pretty cool. And then from there, I was basically bugging the first company that I had done co-op with for probably almost two months. And I wasn't sure if it was going to work out. He kept saying like, I'll call you when we get something, I'll call you when we get something. But I knew... I was also graduating with other people who were trying to bang on the same door. So I hounded them and every couple of days, like, do you need anything? Where can I go? Like, just send me anywhere. I don't care. And finally he called me. He's like, still want to work? I'm like, yep. He's like, going to Bancroft. <laughs> I was like, all right. And went up there and there was no diving. It was just, we were refacing a dam. 
which was pretty neat. Never seen that before. Tons of chipping, tons of drilling, lots of loud work, tons of concrete work. Kind of cut my teeth that first week up there, first couple weeks. And we worked on that job for about a month and ended up somehow I got cycled in with, they had essentially a construction crew and a dive crew because he did marine construction was his bread and butter. And somehow I got cycled in with the dive crew and it worked out. Just got along with the guys. After a while, the supervisor was hard to crack. My first day on the boat with him, and I might actually be referencing co-op, but I said, hey, like put all my stuff on the boat. I was like, is there anything I can do? What can I do? And introduced himself so politely. He's like, hey, what's your name? I was like, Steve Higgins, sir. He's like, Steve, don't touch a fucking thing on this boat. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) One of the other guys, one of the other divers pulled me aside and he's dying laughing. He's like, you'll get used to him. He's like, don't just, don't worry about it. I was like, yeah, no worries. But that was kind of my introduction. But it also, I also understood that as you get into it, like this is a serious thing and guys have special equipment, guys have special ways they set things up. Don't touch anything. <laughs> I know you think you're helping, but you're not. But yeah, I ended up working, ended up working for that company for, I guess about five, five plus years doing what they call inshore marine construction. And you're essentially doing, you're taking a construction site and you're putting it underwater. A lot of nuts and bolts work. Whenever I talk about it, people are always like, oh, you're an underwater welder. And I'm like, not really. We did learn that at school and didn't weld very often. We did a ton of cutting, tons and tons of cutting, which is actually arguably a lot more dangerous. When you cut underwater, you produce, your, your gases are almost pure hydrogen. And if you arc that hydrogen, it explodes. And to the point where my buddy was working overseas, they were cutting apart a car freighter and the bubbles were getting trapped up under his helmet. He sparked an arc and it blew the helmet right off his head. Jesus. He was lucky that another Filipino diver saw him. They were in pretty shallow water. He blacked out. He went over. The Filipino guy grabbed him, took him up. He came to and he was super lucky. But I talked to him about it after. And he's like, Steve, he's like, I felt like the concussion, felt the pop. And he goes, I remember looking up and watching my helmet float away. And he's like, well, it's the end of that. So now I'll ask you about Last Breath. Have you seen that? I have. Okay. I have. That yeah. must hit you a different way because it hit me hard and I've never been yeah. a diver. Yeah. That guy is crazy lucky. Very interesting career. And like I say, I worked for this main company for kind of five-ish years and then got involved with two other companies kind of in the, I don't know, I'll say between Toronto and Kingston area. We worked all over Ontario Went to some really cool places, went to some really cold places, went to some terrible places. Yes, we did dive and poop, (laughs) but learned a ton. And paralleling the fire service, you were called for a reason. We're not calling anybody else. You're there to fix a problem. So let's figure it out. But that could have been a very viable career. You could have done very well and settled in and really specialized in that. So why that and a transition then towards fire? It was, and it, it could be. The last company I worked for worked on Lake Erie and there's natural gas fields out there, which I honestly didn't even know, even when I got into the career, huge natural gas fields on the Canadian and American side, worked for them, became quite lucrative towards the end of that, 
before I left, but you're on the road, like your summer, they're more seasonal. So they're working kind of May to September-ish is their bread and butter. But just having a, a lifestyle, I guess, with, with the inshore construction, you're on the road a lot. And to the point where when I met my current wife, we were having a great time, hit it off. And I was like, I might not see it for a month. And she's like, yeah, yeah, I get it. Just tell me if you don't want to do this. I'm like, no, 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 I'm serious. Like I'll get a call Sunday of where I need to be tomorrow at some absurd time. And we might be there for three weeks or two weeks or whatever. So yeah, on the road a lot. Yeah. That time I was just trying to prepare for fire in all my downtime. But in terms of a, a longevity career, I miss it sometimes. Just, it was really interesting work. And I'm not saying I love firefighting, love my job. It was just different. It was such a different thing and still kind of unique. Like I know way more firefighters than I do divers. And so what was the path to getting on fire? Like what was your path and journey, your process? Process was basically prepare like I'm going into a cage fight and I need to out prepare anybody else coming out of school or coming out of any sort of education facility. I ended up chatting with, he was kind of a family friend of my brother's who went down to Texas, did the Texas course, raved about it, talked his ear off about that. My path was, I, I came up with a five-year plan of just basically staying in really good shape, learning and understanding the test writing process. And then from there, just transitioning into learning how to do a reasonable panel interview which is if nobody's ever done a panel interview, it's extremely intimidating. You sit down with five or six other people and they're all looking at you. Almost all of my spare time was preparing for firefighting. So whether it was, if we got back in some town, we land in St. Thomas or London for the night, where's the closest gym? Go to the gym, come back and start studying, writing mock tests, stuff like that. Just keep preparing, staying sharp. I was very open with my first boss that I'll give you 110%, but this is, this is not my forever. I will give you tons of notice when that comes, hopefully if it comes, but uh, I'm working towards fire. And he was super supportive. He gave me a leave of absence to go to school twice. And he was unbelievable. He even let me go briefly to go kind of cut my teeth on Lake Erie before I actually got a, a contract job out there, which was awesome. I worked with a guy who was already on fire and kind of part-time diving, which was a great resource to have. He took me for a, a station tour years and years ago, which was awesome. He was always good to bounce ideas off of, just little things. One of the things that always stands out, and I get it, I get it now and back then, but he's like, when you go to write a test, he's like, you're going to go into this hall with thousands of other people don't talk to anybody. <laughs> I was like, what are you talking about? He's like, just trust me. And he's like, and don't wear a fire shirt. <laughs> Those like, are two great pieces of advice. Yeah, I was like, I don't own a fire shirt, but uh, <laughs> I was like, okay. And sure enough, I remember rolling in there. My class number in Texas was 120. And I remember seeing guys who would wear shirts from all over, but specifically I remember seeing Texas shirts of like class 90, class 92 class. And I'm going, oh my God, like, oh my God, these guys aren't on yet. And I'm seeing these shirts and I was like, oh man, like this might need to be a 10 year plan. 
And then you start not to knock anybody, you start to hear them talk and they're arguing about leverage questions and what wheels go where. And I was like, okay, I get it. This is why I'm not talking to anybody. I'm like, just do my thing. I studied, I'm ready. Stay in your lane. That's it. Here we go. It's the problem now with the forums too, right? You hear a lot of people like, oh, this guy said this on this forum and that forum, like stay off the forums. Yeah. 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 hundred percent. Just keep your head down. They don't know more than you do. Just do your thing. And you have your circle of people you trust. That's it. Yeah, Yeah. Keep it tight. What about paramedicine? You were thinking about that as well. Was that a possibility? Yeah, I was thinking about that. And I got into one of the colleges. It wasn't the one I was hoping for. Like, I think I was aiming for Humber, but I can't remember where I got into. There's something unique that drew me towards that opportunity to dive. I just saw it as something that I didn't see coming. It came out of nowhere. And I don't know, it just really sparked my interest just as something totally different. I don't know. And I remember... One of the fire guys I was talking to growing up was like, you know, get your scuba license because that, that helps. And I don't know if it does, but yeah, you're, you're breathing on an apparatus for a while. Sure. But I think the big crossover for diving was every single day you're in the water, you're going into a fire. If any of your equipment malfunctions, you can't operate in that environment. I cannot breathe water. So for me, that career cemented my safety sake, I guess. And I joke around like I'm an air pack Nazi. If my pack's not full, I'll go fill it up. There's people who will let their bottle be down a quarter. And it's like, what? What? Like, this is insane. Like, what are you doing? I like air. Yeah. But just understanding you might get a handful of fires a year, but coming from an industry where you operate in that dangerous environment all the time, your safety sense is much different. Like things happen, you have close calls and I had some close calls in that career, but I don't know, it really cemented like how important it is to look out for each other. You could be on a boat with three or four other guys out in the middle of nowhere and you're your own fire station, if you will, where it's like, that's it. It's just us. If something happens, if we have a medical emergency, if he runs out of air, if that stops working, if the compressor dies, if the boat, like that's it. It's just you guys and you have to take care of each other. Maybe that's where larger departments can slide into that mentality of like, oh, it's not just all on me. It's not just all on our crew. Like 15 trucks are showing up. You're in the mix. Things eventually will get done or someone else will figure it out or we're smaller departments maybe well, it's our three trucks. It's always these three trucks and this is all we have. So we better get it done. That's it. You're trying to do more with less essentially. When I worked on Lake Erie, that was a much more, not necessarily professional, but a much more commercial, big operation and not even to the degree of like Gulf of Mexico. But in terms of working for a family company for the majority of my career, where it's father, son operation, corners get cut. And you do more with less. You have to. It's just the way it is. So you got more settled in with understanding SOGs, SOPs, that kind of approach. But yeah, you had to get creative sometimes in terms of how do we fix this problem? And there's some skills, like to this day, there's still skills that I learned there that I would have never learned anywhere else. How to splice rope, how to splice cable, how to make a sling out of a single piece of cable. And it's like, how are we going to make all these slings? Boss's son's like, I'm going to show you. We're going to make them ourselves. (laughs) It's like, what? (laughs) Yeah. Buckle up. Nice. So then maybe just for a timeline, give me an idea of how long from deciding to get on to getting hired and then talk to me about getting hired in your first department and what that was like. 
I guess I was starting to kick at the can. It would have been late 2006. I ended up getting hired in the beginning of January in 2009. Came quicker than I had anticipated, but basically went to Texas in 06. I came back. I started writing tests. The first one or two didn't go great, kind of figuring out the process. But at the time, they were taking... OFM as preferred candidacy, which I didn't have coming out of the States. So I was like, man, I got to go back to school. <laughs> so I ended up going to Seneca again, but for firefighting this time. And the coordinator there was awesome. He took credits from my course in Texas. I essentially only had to do a semester, which was awesome. And it was all practical. So it was kind of a nice little rejuvenation of, okay, here we go again. Done most of this stuff before, but this is a great refresher. So I went back to Seneca did a semester, met some awesome guys there, and then started applying again after that with a bit of, now I have the OFM certs. I got all my NFPA stuff, my pro board, IFSAC, everything. So probably look a little bit better on paper. And from there, it was just anywhere and everywhere, just knocking on doors and trying to apply. Finally started getting interviews. The very first one I had five minutes into the interview I was like, I don't think I want to work here. <laughs> and I know that is such a weird thing to say because I was, you know, I was told like you never turn down a fire job and I was not going to do good in that interview, to be honest. But I had studied, I studied the demographics of the department, how they run calls, how they staff trucks, like their apparatus. I studied this place inside and out and I sit down again, panel interview, sweating bullets. I'm like, okay, Steve, what are the five components of an SCBA? <laughs> And I was so taken aback. What? Like what? And I was like, okay, uh, I start rhyming them off. And he's like, what makes up a quint? What? Like they were clearly trying to draw from their volunteers, which was totally cool. But yeah, I was like, how? I'm like, this is a weird way to, to split candidates. And anyway, so the first couple didn't go great. And from there kind of start to build essentially a template to apply. And I would have like research statistics. This is what I'm researching. This is what they're about. I was willing to work anywhere. That particular one, I was like, I don't think I actually want to work here, but it was a good opportunity to interview. But from there, yeah, I ended up getting on with a smaller department, two stations, like 40 guys, very small department and awesome, like awesome, awesome learning curve in terms of there's no recruit class. You're a recruit class of one. And yeah, I was the only guy who got hired. The next guy wasn't starting for a number of months. You're in it like from the get-go. We did a week of days for a month. So four weeks of days. You meet each shift, do a bit of training with them each day, and then that's it. You're good to go. And throughout that training, we had some significant calls. And my captain at the time joked around. He's like, you've had the best training that anybody could get in terms of practical calls. Three weeks into that training, we had a very significant fire that was like precedent setting across the province. So it was interesting to be a part of that and kind of see just how things went down and see what happened and see how the department handled it. But yeah, that was kind of my first experience from school to hire, I guess. Looking back on that fire then, just let's touch on that briefly. Being new to the service and then being thrown into that, what was your experience through it and then looking back on it? Is there anything you would have, could have, should have known different or like, how do you reflect on it now looking back as opposed to the experience in the moment and just sort of being swept up in it? I wasn't first in the shift that I 
was about to be assigned to was first in, and I was coming in to work with them that day. So they had got the fire maybe an hour, maybe just over an hour earlier. And I rolled in for work and there's not a single truck in the hall. And like, what's going on? And like, oh, it's crazy fire. Like we're getting a pickup truck. We're going up there. It was still active. Like it was still active. Obviously they're still pulling people out and I'm kind of waiting to be assigned to something and get into it. But I guess retrospect was just, and it still happens to this day, operating with a very low level of staffing just across the board on a, on a day-to-day basis. That was their norm. It's growing pains. It is what it is. That's, you have to start somewhere, but I can't imagine being first in as a crew of two to something of that magnitude. So what was the call? Just give me an overview. Sure. So understand what we're talking about. Uh, yeah, it was a retirement home, an older building that had been renoed dozens of times, really strange layouts doors that led nowhere, doors that would open to a brick wall, just a really weird, weird layout. And two of the guys that I ended up working with for most of my career there, they were extremely lucky to get out of there alive. It sounds like a recipe for problems. It was to the point where they were getting ready to bail out of a window, which turned into be a a bathroom mirror. So they smashed it, getting ready to go and went, "Oh, oh boy. Luckily, they linked up with another crew in the hallway and they led them out. But staffing was a huge issue. And not only from the fire side, but there's been precedent setting changes in terms of sprinkler retrofitting and also staff on site at these care facilities. There was one, if I recall, there's one person working and you have however many people living there. It's noticeable at a lot of those facilities, even just going for a VSA and you walk in the room, no one's there. So let, let alone having a massive call, like a fire and you're having, having to extricate people. It's yeah. As you know, you go to some of these calls and I swear it's everybody's first day. <laughs> like I just started, <laughs> I just started. I'm like, oh, you're all, everybody's always just starting. And some know the patient, some don't. And it's interesting. You mentioned about the department and uh, the interview style. I just want to touch on that briefly. It made me think of how there's a lot of talk in the fire service, just about firefighters and ego and cabins and, you know, on the floor, but. I almost think that departments themselves need to drop a little bit of ego too, because there's always that question, well, well, why our city? Why our department? It's like, are you kidding me? Yeah. I'm applying to 10 different, like, I want to get on a department. Like, yes. I know you want to be, you think that you're so incredibly special that I only am applying here and I really want this job with you. And yet that may be true. You may have a preference for a department, but we're not in a place anymore where you can like put all your eggs in one basket, right? You have to, like you said, apply everywhere. Yeah. So I think it just puts candidates on the spot of like trying to convince them that, oh, this is the only place I want to work. 100%. You just want a job. You want to be a yeah. firefighter somewhere. I was getting ready and my my wife probably would have killed me, but my other kind of backup plan was like, all right, I'm going to go do wildland in BC. And even just saying that out loud now, like, you were going to leave the pro like leave the province to go get experience like out there and then try to come back. Like it's crazy, but that's what most guys were willing to do just to get something better on their resume or experience or whatever to come in the door. And when you have that department, why here? Well, this is why, but like you say, it's, you can't really have that luxury all the time because they're like, there's so many people trying to get on and there's lots of good, there's lots of really good candidates. And as far as confidence goes, going into an interview, I remember one of the pages I follow, one of the Stoics, he talks about Marcus Aurelius all the time, one of the Stoic pages. And he talked about how George Clooney, 
when he used to be applying for acting jobs, he'd be stressed out because he's trying to convince people they should bring him in and hire him. And he flipped it and realized, like, wait a minute, you need actors for this job. <laughs> you can't do yeah. what you do unless you have an actor. So you're the one that has a problem. I'm the solution. Right. And now I don't mean to, now let's bring that back as in like people shouldn't be coming in with this ego and entitlement. Like I'm the solution to all your problems. But I think it would just be an interesting mental exercise for someone that needs some confidence in the moment to interview properly and just sure. drop the nerves a little bit as in like they need you yeah. or they need firefighters. So as opposed to like begging and boring and stealing or you absolutely know, yeah i used to laugh because i'd put on my resume obviously put commercial diver and all that experience and most would have glanced over it because they have thousands of applications They're like tell us about commercial driving I'm like well actually, <laughs> actually that says diving right. and then we'd get into it but it's like you're trying to distinguish yourself but obviously i guess what i'm getting at is they're getting so many applications they can't go through everything yeah. And even recently realizing too, that you think that they're picking up your application and like pouring over it. Right. Making notes. And where there's like 3000 <laughs> and they're getting run through a machine now, basically exactly. right? for keywords. So it's a yeah. totally different animal than it ever. There's not this massive stack of resumes until it gets down, narrowed down to a number. But yeah, as far as your format goes and what your spacing is, and oh, obviously yeah. it can't be a mess, but it's yeah. not as particular maybe as you think it is. The content matters, but sometimes that even gets misunderstood. Like oh, you said. oh, yeah. 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 Commercial driving. Yeah. 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 <laughs> Still a good thing to have on your resume, but diving is a bit more. That's right. Mm -hmm. You get hired on your recruit experience. Walk me through that. You said you were a recruit of one. You had that intense couple of years. So walk me through that and into your rookie years and maybe then to your transitioning to another department. Again, small department. My captain was awesome in terms of he had very high expectations and he understood that by not running a recruit class, they need to get you up to speed fast. You're running calls during training and then you're officially on the truck. I don't know if it's still the same, actually. I should ask my buddy there, but within a month, you're on the truck. Pros and cons to doing it that way, obviously. I It worked for me. I watched other people get pulled apart at the seams because they weren't ready for it. They were expecting a 14-week recruit class. But tons of like practical hands-on, you're just right into it. You're driving within a year usually. And again, hindsight, like you're driving, we used to drive the tower there by yourself within like a year. And looking back on that, it's like, oh my God, like it's a recipe for disaster. But that was the norm. Again, you had to do more with less because you don't have the staffing. So if you need to take two trucks with two or three staff, you got to split them up somehow. Like you can't split people in half. Yeah. And luckily for you with your work history, the work ethic, the safety mindedness, the the structure, all that plays very well and translates easily. So maybe not having 14 weeks for you is different than someone sure. definitely needing 14 weeks because they're coming from doing software. 100%. Yeah. I had some good life experience coming in and again, watching someone who didn't have that experience, who maybe went to high school fire school and then they're in that it's a huge shocker like big big shocker they're not getting spoon fed maybe the way they thought they were going to be actually my first day there was pretty funny and i thought they were pranking me but nobody told my captain i was starting so i showed up i didn't even have a uniform yet so i'm like i don't know what to wear i'll wear my school uniform i guess which was kind of weird but wore my school uniform showed up show up to the back door full of piss and vinegar and this is the day this has been waiting for this my whole life and they're like, who the hell are you? <laughs> like, I'm 
Steve back to almost back to the yeah. boat. Don't touch anything. Yeah, don't touch anything. <laughs> I'm like, I'm Steve Higgins, my first day. They're like, what? Are you kidding me? And next thing you know, like doors are slamming. Nobody told me, blah, blah. And guys are digging through their lockers, like trying to find pants that fit and shirts that fit. And I was like, oh, this is, I'm like, I've seen Ladder 49. This is a joke, some sort of joke or something, right? And it was just poor communication. Um, really so, poor. Really poor. <laughs> so that was kind of a funny entrance that gave a little eyebrow raise coming in the door. But again, it worked out. The crew I went to was awesome. Still have friends there to this day. We try to get together. We had an unfortunate funeral that we had to attend recently, but it was interesting. Sometimes that's how you get back together. And we talked about getting together outside of work again, and we actually did it last week, which was pretty cool. And some of those guys I'm much tighter with than others, but it was nice to see everybody. Those first kind of, I guess it was just under four years there, were, were awesome. They were, met some really cool people, met some guys who ended up going to other departments as well, who were really dialed really into the job, opened my mind in terms of of training and more advanced training and just taking more of a responsibility to train. There's no training division there. Nobody is coming to say, Hey, this is what we're doing today. It was all captain led, all crew led, which again, there's pros and cons to that. But I personally believe like we have a massive responsibility to do the basics on our own all the time. Even departments with training divisions have problems. hundred percent. It's like, there's not a training division. hundred percent. <laughs> some of them are great. I'm just saying some departments are dealing with that issue. Yes. From there, I just started looking around a little bit and I just wanted to be a bit busier and wanted to be involved in more rescue disciplines, tech rescue, stuff like that. Again, kind of just all in. I got involved in the small department as much as I could ended up being a uh, ice water instructor and a boat operator and doing a bit of training with that kind of from my background, which was great. Yeah. I just was looking for more opportunity and I just wanted to be busier. So ended up jumping departments. I got extremely lucky to have that opportunity to be able to get hired again. And then going through, I guess what you would call like a, a legit recruit class of we were 12 to 14 weeks. Did a ton, ton of training, had a really, really good dialed in training division at the time. Guys who were going to FDIC, guys who were just, they were into it. The latest, greatest stuff, some of which has still not hit the floor that we did, but really good experience with that. Got on with 20 guys. So huge change in terms of being the lone wolf versus 20. We bonded really well, like the class supported each other. And it was a really cool, really cool experience lucked out at the end of that training. I was hoping to be at headquarters. I wanted to be busy, didn't ask for it, but that's where I landed. And I landed with a stud crew who are into the job. And to this day, we've had some, some changes over the years, obviously promotions and stuff, but the core group is still there. And we're just trying to spread the good word. As far as mental and physical struggles over the years, what have you had to deal with and how did you journey through it? I know obviously with your childhood upbringing was really tough, but you've had some obviously self-awareness some of your mental well-being and physical well-being. So how has that sort of path been for you over the years? I'd like to say it's been good. I do consider myself pretty self-aware. My first actual real experience with, I'll say something traumatic in the workplace was actually from diving. And it was one of the last working dives that I did before accepting the, the job or leaving for fire. And we were working on Lake Erie. I ended up getting in with the crew there. There was probably 
say they ran four, four to six boats on the lake and they all had different responsibilities. I ended up getting in with a boat that did more of the technical diving and we did deeper stuff. So your bottom times were a lot shorter, but you were doing a lot of decompression in the water. And then we had a chamber on board for decompression as well. And we used to dive mixed gas a lot, which is just another layer of technicality. So one of my last dives, it was the deepest dive I've ever done. I think we were on, it was 180 or 190 foot table, which is your max depth. I was putting together a, not massive, but a, a decent size piece of pipe in a junction. And time is of the essence when you're working at that depth, because you can only stay there for so long. So literally you go down a line to a well and almost before you hit bottom, you're saying, send the project. So you can kind of receive it as you hit bottom and start working away as hard as you can for the next 15, 20 minutes. Your bottom time is very limited. And I got to the bottom and just like any equipment, like if you're, you're breathing on an SCBA, you can kind of feel when something's not right in terms of air, when that air is restricted or whatever, you're like something, something's not right. I'm going to double check my gear. So I hit bottom and immediately I could feel the helmet just wasn't breathing the way it should. As I'm watching the piece of pipe come down, I'm getting ready to receive it. I'm preemptively radioing like, hey, diver topside. I'm like, can you just check my air? I'm like, yeah, no problem. And they're looking and they don't see anything wrong on their gauges. They don't see anything wrong on their hookups. They're like, oh, all good here. I'm like, okay, receive the project. And almost immediately, like I can feel those last couple breaths. I'm like, it's coming. I'm like, divers out of air on bailout which is kind of what you tell them. So I'm telling them my main is gone and I'm breathing off the cylinder on my back. And right away, I'm giving myself a mental clock because I know I have to, without messing up my body too much, I have to stop in the water. I can't just go up. I waited on my own fault. I waited a bit too long to go to bailout. So it allowed water to get in the helmet to kind of my chin which wasn't comfortable. And then that slowly crept up to my lip and I didn't want to waste. You can blow the helmet out. I tried a couple of times and it just wasn't coming out, but I didn't want to waste my air to get the water out of the helmet if I could still breathe. Long story short, I'm out of air asking what's going on. I probably gave it maybe 30 seconds. They're still figuring out. They don't know what's going on, which is concerning me. I'm like, if they don't know what's going on, I, I, I can't fix it. So I'm like leaving bottom, I'm on bailout. And when you dive mixed gas at that depth, your ascent rate is half a foot a second. So you literally, what we used to do to pace it, you put a fist on top of a fist as you go up the rope. So I'm in my head, I'm like, this is fucking great. <laughs> like now I have time to think about this, which is good and bad. But I'm going these half a foot a second up to my first stop and we do wear appropriate size bailouts, but I'm like, this is going to be tight. Like if everything plays out properly, this is going to be real tight. And on top of that, they're still don't know what's going on. So I make a slow ascent up. I have water like just below my bottom lip. So I'm kind of tilting my head to get good breaths in the helmet, starting to problem solve. I'm like, okay. If I run out of air, I can free ascent. They have a chamber on the boat. Even if I pass out, I'm like, they can get me out of the water, get in the boat, I'll probably be okay. <laughs> anyway, and you're logically like going through this stuff. And I wasn't panicking and calm as a cucumber. 
Anyway, I think it was the first or second stop in the water. I had, I believe, three stops in water before I could go to the surface. I believe it was the second-ish stop that they figured it out. When we were diving mixed gas, we had a carousel of the gas on the boat. And they had switched me by accident to an empty bottle. And somewhere in their communications, they were looking at the gauge, seeing it full. And as they started to problem solve, it would have gone to zero. But they were out on the deck trying to figure things out. Now I'm out of air. He's asking the guy, hey, what's going on? He's like, I just switched them to a full bottle. And they're trying to figure it out. Anyway, they finally figured it out, came up. Everything was fine. But that was a legitimate... I was like, this is could get messy. This could be the end of my day. And you said it's not uncommon for because of the noise on the boat too, where compressors can run out of fuel and not be noticed. And yeah, you're running off a compressor. You could have high hose running. You could have massive air compressors running for other equipment, cranes. So it's not uncommon to run out of air. And then you can breathe down, like you said, you're breathing down your umbilical, whatever's left in it. Yep. Right. You breathe down your umbilical. You always have a, a cylinder on your back as a reserve. But yeah, just that particular one and like a combination of that, the water in the helmet. At the time, I was very good with math in terms of cubic feet of air. What's that going to give me? And I was like, like I say, doing the math, I'm like, this isn't good. (laughs) I didn't realize that rattled me until I got in the water the next day. And it's not uncommon to get water in your helmet. It splashed up in my helmet. And again, the day before, calm as a cucumber, no harm, no foul. The guy that made the mistake jokingly, he's like, you can punch me in the face if you want. I was like, no, man, we're, everybody did their job. This is perfect. It went the way it was supposed to go. But they realized that it was a close call. But the next day when I jumped in, just that tactile feeling of the water hitting my lip, you couldn't have got me back to that ladder fast enough. Yeah. Your brain's like, fuck oh this. Oh my God. Yeah, yeah. It was just like, nope. And again, that was kind of the end ish. I, I dove a handful of times after that and then started firefighting. And I worked part-time diving for the first kind of year and a half, just on and off odd jobs and did a lot more supervising than diving. Did a handful of dives, but it just, my head just wasn't the same. It was weird. And to go from like a very high level performance to anxious about getting into the water was bizarre. And it didn't really figure it out until uh, my oldest brother got into scuba diving probably five or eight years ago now and kind of renewed me back into it and dove with him a handful of times, but he kind of got me, kind of forced me to get back in the water and just figure it out and just deal with it. And get enough positive experiences yeah. where can sort of outweigh it a bit. And it took a while and I was very hyper safety aware, which isn't a bad thing, but to the nth degree and just being like overly cautious of everything. Yeah. Just to talk about things that are common and we can obviously this translates very well to the fire service is you get taught emergency procedures or firefighter survival or writ. And it's very much if this, then this, my feeling is, I don't think it would be uncommon for most people to think, well, I'll never like we go through learning this, but we're never going to do it or need it. hundred percent. So you having had the experience and luckily you talk about going from a high level then down to anxiousness, but the high level performance actually is what helped you get through the serious, most serious situation. Yeah. So thank God for that. Do you pick up on that from people and you sort of roll your eyes and realize like without the experience, it's hard to convey the importance of this, but it's like, you don't fucking understand. Yeah. (laughs) If this does actually happen, (laughs) this stuff actually has to happen. Yeah. There is other incidents I can touch on quickly, but I will say 
the schooling, and this is where I think there's a disconnect sometimes between fire school and reality. The schooling for diving, I felt really prepared you in terms of like understanding the gear and understanding safety procedures to the point where you actually do a bailout drill before every single dive, every single one. So imagine as a firefighter, I'll say something as simple as masking up every day. Not too many guys do that. Or doing a writ procedure every single day. It's not happening. But it was to the point where anytime you did run out of air, again, it happens, the muscle memory was automatic. And you see my hand doing it right now. Like the knobs on the side of your head, you're just boom, up, on, and then you figure it out from there. But the every day and the, well, never, there's got to be somewhere in between there where for our profession, what is that amount as often as possible? But then what does that mean, right? Or you shoot for every day and that doesn't happen every day and that becomes once a week or once every two weeks, that's still more than none. Exactly. Right. And I was thinking the other day on that topic, because you get into conversation with guys, exactly what we're talking about. Well, we'll never, we'll never do that. I hope to never have to use half of the skills that I've learned ever. And that's the whole point of the career, but you need something in your back pocket, like when it happens or if it happens. And again, I hope to never have to bail out a window in my career ever, but you still need to know how to do it. I don't want to be sitting there and be like, oh man, I've never done this before. (laughs) Yeah. Or that, and you've had that intimate experience of, you're not just going to figure it out in the moment. Your muscle memory and practice is what saved your life. And that applies directly to what we do. Yeah. It's interesting. Back to uh, talking about mental health struggles and stuff like that. Recently, in terms of my own firefighting, I guess, had some very challenging calls and So far, I would say, at least affecting me, the most significant call I've ever had was the end of last year. And it was interesting because I I am on our peer support team. So you're supporting members, but you're actually involved in it this time. And I talked to our other lead. We were both there and said like, hey, we're both self-aware enough for like, we might need to step away from this one. That didn't end up being the case, but it was interesting because it was a call where your on-scene time was extremely exaggerated. And I'm talking hours. And I've noticed over the years, for me personally, those are the ones that cause way more of an impact on me versus the the car accident in, out, cut and stuff, boom, done, on to the next one. And it's that on-scene time, when it gets amplified, your brain, I've talked to our, uh, my therapist about this, your brain just goes. And you start looking at stuff, you start thinking about it, you start trying to put the situation together and it just runs. And you become runs. an observer yeah. as opposed to a doer. Exactly. And you've got more stimuli over six hours than you do over 15 minutes. It's more to process. Yeah, tons. And in dealing with that call in particular, I knew I wanted to start airing it out quickly. And that wasn't necessarily going to be an appointment with a psychologist or anything like that. But something that came up in our one of our peer support meetings was just the idea of writing. So that night, one of my buddies actually came over and we just kind of chatted a little bit, vented to him a bit. And then as soon as he left, I just started like verbal diarrhea on the computer. And I remember her recommendation was, you don't even need to keep it. If it's on paper, you can shred it when you're done or delete it or whatever. 
but just putting all those thoughts to paper, I found it helped me. It's not going to help everybody, but helped me incredibly. And then to kind of layer on top of that, we had been talking about EMDR therapy. And I'm trying to remember, I always forget what it's called. Eye movement. Desensitization. That's it. Yeah. Recall. I can't remember what the R. I always forget the yeah. R too. Eye movement desensitization is the main yeah. part of it. So by choosing, making your eyes move in a certain direction, guided wise will cue memories or help you then with neural pathways and just settle things. Basically, that's the, the most layman way to describe <laughs> it. But I went in. It uh, fixes shit in your head. It fixes things. Yeah. <laughs> I went in for a, a session of that. And it, it, I think it helped immensely. And it's funny because as you're doing it, she would stop me and we're going through the call, we're going through details and she would be like, where are you right now? And the first couple, I'm like, I'm, I'm doing this wrong. She's like, no, 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 seriously. Like just, it's weird. She's like, where are you? I'm like, I'm in the forest. <laughs> She's like, no, that's good. And that's again, for me, like being outdoors, doing a lot of hiking, the stuff that was easy to process, that's where I kept landing in like a place that I was comfortable, which for me was sitting in the forest. <laughs> right. Yeah. So recalling and recounting and discussing a difficult thing, but where your mind and your body feels safe. Now it changes how your body cues when that thought comes up. And your brain, like she was kind of explaining, your brain doesn't want to attached to that. It wants to move away from it. Right. And that's um, why it cycles over and over and over trying yeah. to make sense of it. Yeah. Yeah. Like a puzzle. Exactly. Your brain hates things that are <laughs> open-ended. Yeah. But for me, that was a, a, a recent struggle, which again, I was fortunate to have all of the tools at my fingertips. How did you get involved in peer support? Just start there. Fairly quickly. Once I transitioned departments, I was always interested in it. Like, again, just trying to get involved in the department. I could see glimpses of the culture changing in terms of the old suck it up mentality. But I had already seen a big difference in that from switching departments before even getting involved in peer support. It was just a much different culture. Did you have a therapist before FIRE even came into your life? No. Okay. No. So what point did you pick up that as well? probably a few years into peer support. And the reasoning wasn't even necessarily like, oh man, things are going south. I need, I need somebody. It, for me, it was like, I can't be on the, I feel like I couldn't be on the team and talk about this stuff without actually experiencing it. Can't be like, oh yeah, you should, you should totally stop drinking beer, but I'm going to keep drinking beer. Right. <laughs> Yeah. And for me, that was like, I got to at least experience this. Yeah. yeah. And it was awesome. And it was, I always explain to people, number one, try to find somebody you jive with. If you have a few bad experiences, that's okay. Just switch. They're not going to be offended. All the conversations that I've had with her are exactly the same as I would have with a close friend. I'm just getting professional insight now. Whereas my buddy who works graphic design probably doesn't quite understand our job as well as she does from working with emergency services. Not to say that buddy isn't valuable because he absolutely is, but you're getting a professional critique that's all about you. One of the phrases, and I'm going to mix it up a bit, that when we were having a kind of like a town hall about this stuff, she said, where else do you get to go into a meeting and only talk about yourself and only focus on yourself? 
without the other person being trying to trump the conversation or something. You got to do a podcast. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Nailed it. <laughs> this is going to be 250 bucks, by the way. Okay. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> you take Bitcoin. <laughs> this is all just a ruse to get people to do therapy. That's all this is. <laughs> oh, man. But it's very true. On, yeah. yeah. On top of that, my wife has had a hell of a roller coaster ride through her life. And I saw the opportunity of peer support, not only to, to support my brothers and sisters, but to support yourself and to support your spouse and your family. She's dealt with sexual abuse, alcoholism in her family, and umpteen, umpteen issues, depression, suicide. She's obviously had some ups and downs through that. And I don't know... It's hard to say. I'd like to say that without the tools at my fingertips now that we would have been able to work it out. I don't know if we would have, but I could tell you for sure, knowing what I know now, it's made it a lot easier on both of our ends and just understanding where she's come from, things that she's dealt with, things that she'll forever deal with and letting her know that it's okay to have a shitty day and it's okay. It's the old cliche. It's okay to not be okay. But it's true. If you're sad today, that's okay. You don't have to put on a face when I get home. It's okay. What can I do to help you? Because I, I really do love her. But yeah, she's been put through the ringer and she's doing all the right things, but still there's things there that are going to be a forever struggle. And that's just the way it is. And I accept that. And I, I hope she accepts that too. Yeah. There's things I think people need to realize that they're going to have to just manage for their life. And you can still have a thriving life managing it properly. And then some things are just going to come and go. Reprocessing is the R. I just glanced at our notes. Reprocessing, okay. Eye movement desensitization, reprocessing, yeah. Which we touched on the word, but man, when you're, when you're talking about that, also makes me think back to that moment where you were aware that you were on the mountain, you were aware there's an issue going on with you, maybe with a guide you were with, and you thought to call people you trust or email to reach out to say, hey, what do you bring with you? For sure. For this problem. And right. then you were given the list to look at. This is what my brain does, right? I start to link like, amazing if guys would do the same yep. and girls, people, firefighters. If they recognize around them that maybe something's missing to reach out to people that they trust or other resources and say, hey, what do you do or what have you done for this, this, and this? As far as our mental health, right? And then taking that for what it is and actually putting it into practice or helping them frame what they're dealing with as opposed to just trying to figure it out on your own. Or trusting someone that maybe feels off, like that guide. Ironically, one of the things on that list, I hope I'm saying it right, it's called dexamethasone. And it is a, it's a needle and it'll save your life if you're having, a, I don't know if it's an embolism, but it's to do with high altitude sure. brain stuff. That was one of the main ones. I'm like, do you guys carry this? And he's like, no, it's at, uh, it's at the first hut. I'm like, okay, can we take it? He's like, well, no, it's for everybody. I'm like, well, and he's like, it's fine. We've only had one incident in so many years. And the guide left the guy and just came down and got it and went back up. Like as if it's to the garage. And I'm like, you're talking probably a 12 hour delay. And he was okay with that. And I was just like, what am I doing? So bring that forward to our world. It's like, well, it's on the truck. So it's, it's good. It's like, but it needs to come in the house. Exactly. But we'll go, we'll get it. But by the time we, yeah. it's over. <laughs> It needs to actually come with you. Oh man. Yeah. Tools stacked at the door. They yeah. don't just go from the truck to the door and then they stay there. Exactly. You bring them with you because you need them. Yeah. 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 <laughs> and if I brought it, you can't have it. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> you bring your own. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. 
Yeah. So great of you to, and your wife, to be able to incorporate what you both know and be aware of what you're dealing with and work together to manage and figure it out. It's been an interesting process for sure, but just understanding, I think just respecting each other's space too. And I was guilty as all get out again, back to we're, we're problem solvers. If someone came to me with a problem, if you had a terrible day, I'm going to try to fix it. And that's not always helpful. So simple things, if she comes home from work and she's venting about something, I'll ask, like, are you venting or do you want some input here? And a lot of times she's like, no, I'm just venting about whatever, so-and-so, rather than me be like, well, here's what you need to do. Because <laughs> that's not, it's hard. Again, we're helpers, but it's hard to, to backseat that sometimes. Yeah. You still are helping. Fitness for both of you, has that been an anchor, a help, a support? It's huge for me. She's kind of hit or miss. She's not a big gym gal, and but loves going for hikes, like more outdoor stuff. Sure. Which, Just which activity I in general. Prefer, yeah. yeah. But that's been big for me to the point that when I got that call about my dad, I legitimately didn't know what to do. Obviously, I'm going to get together with family at some point, but there was so much emotion that was going through my, my body and my mind. I was just like, I don't know what to do with this. Like, I, I don't know what to do with this. And I literally went to the gym and I remember bumping into a girl that I grew up with and I hadn't seen her in probably a year. And I'm sure my face read like something had happened and she's like, Hey, how you doing? And I was just like, Hey, and she kind of gave me the, the head tilt and she's like, are you okay? And I was like, no, no, I'm not. I was like, I just lost my dad. And she's like, what are you doing here? And I was like, I don't know. I'm like, this was the most non-judgmental place I could think where I could be. And you're around people, but you're, you don't have to be interacting with them if you don't. Yeah, I can do my own thing. And to me, the gym has always been neutral ground in terms of judgment. And I say judgment in terms of your exercise, like the weights don't care if you move them or not, but you can go in and interact and do your thing. And it's been consistent for me in terms of it's a challenge. You can make it as challenging as you want. 200 pounds over your head is always 200 pounds over your head. There's no tricks to get it there. I mean, there's technique, but it's just, it's been this raw thing in my life where I don't know. It was weird looking back retrospectively that I was like, I don't know what to do here. Or it's a mirror for you that normally I can lift this. I can't today. What's going on? Sure. And then you could translate that to mentally. Like normally I'm like this in this situation and I'm not. What's going on? I think it just makes you curious, right? And if you have that self-awareness and reflection. Absolutely. But yeah, it's always been a big part of my life since my brother introduced me to it. I do and really enjoy obviously getting outside is my preference. Like I don't, I'm not in the gym as much in the summer. But yeah, it's always been this equalizer with no judgment in my mind. The commonality of you mentioning about writing things down and then actively moving in the gym, right? So moving through something, the key word is move. That energy, we don't need to get too woo-woo about it for people, but the energy needs to move. And either sometimes that's physical and sometimes it's mental, as in keeping it in your head isn't moving it out of you. Yes. So moving yeah. it either by writing or speaking just contemplating about it doesn't solve it. Here's the problem. What are you going to do? Yeah. What are you going to do about it? So have you found that to be pretty consistent now where you address things in small bits as they come up, as opposed to that old mentality of like 
deal with it when it's a massive problem and you can't unpack it. Yeah. I was talking about some, some mental health stuff with a, a non-fire buddy the other day and he was joking around and I know he was joking, but he was joking around about friends that he know he knows of recently who've gotten married and they already have counselors or therapists. And he was like, oh, it's ridiculous, blah, 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 blah. And I'm like, well, maybe it is. I don't know their situation, but I said, also think of having those connections when things are good. And now if things go for a dump, you're not scrambling to find the resources. And I had the same conversation with a firefighter recently who started seeing somebody and nothing's going on. Like they're just, they're just checking in. And he said, it's been obviously really introspective and it's been life-changing for him. But I said the same thing. I'm like, I'm mad. I'm like, you have that connection now. The connection's built. If something happens, if you run an early call or if you lose a family, like whatever, you're not scrambling to wait six weeks to six months to see somebody. You're just like, oh yeah, I have, I have an appointment next week. Or find someone you fit with. Yeah, Exactly. Even in the moment when you recognize like, oh shit, there's some like peace and like, I know, like I know what my first thing to do is. That settles a lot of that. A lot of the problem I think is that the moment happens and you're awash and you don't know what to do, that uncertainty, that chaos, that makes it worse. Absolutely. It can eat you up. You came to the awareness also of like sympathy versus empathy. And then sort of how have you put that into practice with your personal life and maybe through peer support? I haven't read, I'd like to read some Brene Brown stuff. I know my wife has been through a lot of her work, but I just remember her talking about sympathy versus empathy and the the quick example was somebody's fallen in a well and sympathy is the person comes up to the edge of the well and they're like hey like are you okay down there like oh that sucks you're in a well okay well i'll be up here versus empathy is like i'm coming down in terms of putting that into practice i think for me it's just when you're helping somebody or dealing with somebody or offering support number one not just offering fake lobs or fake passes of like, let me know if you need anything. It's actually getting a bit more involved. Or time heals all wounds. Yeah. Yeah. But making space like, and I know you've talked about it with different guests, but leaving that space and making space for that person. I have a buddy right now who's going through some stuff and we chatted the other day for, I don't know how long, like an hour plus. And, and he's a really good friend and I would do that for anybody, but he's like, you know, thanks so much for for taking the time. And he's like, I'm sorry about, I'm dude, just, you don't be sorry about anything, man. Like you're a good buddy. And I want to make sure you get through the end of this. It's just uh, sometimes asking those questions too, of what do you need? Like, what do you need right now? And anytime in our, I'll say our infancy, but in the last few years, as our, our peer support team has built to a, a different level, any incident that didn't quite go as planned in terms of the aftermath of support. Anytime I've chatted with crews and I always say like in a perfect world, what would this have looked like? I'll say post-call. And it's always just somebody stopping in and just seeing what we need. It's nothing crazy. I wanted to go home for 12 hours and swim in a pool and it had to be a hot pool with rubber ducks. Like it's just so simple. It's just like just seeing just validating us and like, what do you guys need right now? And it's like, uh, you know what? Maybe we just, can we be on delayed for half an hour and just grab a cup of coffee and kind of digest this? It's so simple. That question sometimes even, what do you need? I think some people don't even, if you're, especially if you're a Washington, you don't know what you need. So maybe even what you need is like two hours to just 
let it all settle. And then maybe amongst yourselves, you will figure out what it is you need. Yeah. Yeah. And I know people have the best intentions of like, well, what can I bring you? What do you need? Let's just solve this. Let's, it's like, how about a little bit of space? That's it. Yeah. Yeah. Like we're trying to encourage our crews right now that it doesn't have to be, the process of peer support can be led by anybody and it doesn't have to be captain led or AC led or whoever. We could come back from a call that is not even on the radar of affecting somebody. And if it struck a chord with you, that's okay. Like, just let us know. And nobody, we're not going to chastise a cat. How did you not know? You know, Scott was feeling this way. It's like, you're not mind readers. There's some personal ownership there. Yeah, absolutely. Just got to create the space where people can feel like they can actually say something. Yeah. Did you get into instructing? I did. What drew you to that? And how's that experience been? To me, it's a, I think it's a big pay it forward thing. And the more information that we can give incoming firefighters to set them up for success, the easier it's going to be on everybody. And at the end of the day, it's the customer. Like the customer is getting the best results. I found through instructing, it forces you to become more knowledgeable in XYZ topic. And I really like working with people, but especially when someone has that aha moment of like, oh, okay, that's how you move hose. Okay, I get it. I get why it's important. I get the why. And that's always been a big driver when I instruct anything is I want you to leave there with the why, not just, okay, I need you to do this and you're going to move it like this. You're going to imitate me and then you're going to go back. It's like, no, no, no. Do you really understand why? And, and you know, the when, the, the, why when. And the when, yeah. yeah. The other day we were talking about just like a tripod search position and our crew is pretty damn dialed. And we had some guys from other crews who were there who had never seen it. And again, the other thing with teaching is you tend to get challenged, which I don't see. I think when I first started, I saw that as a bit of a, why would you challenge this best practice? But now I see it as like a, please, like, please challenge me because it's only going to make it better. And if you have a better way, let's do it. I'm not opposed to change at all, but talking about that try that simple, one simple thing, that tripod heads up position as to the why behind it and just gave them a better understanding. And you could literally see like, oh, oh, okay. Like I get it. I get it. This makes so much sense. And then showing them actual examples of, okay, if your hands and knees and you hit a downstairs stairwell, like you're probably going for a ride. Or if you're just on your knees and your partner behind you bumps up the line and just happens to bump you, I'm like, you're doing a face plant. Like just all these different things to show and explain why it's advantageous. Of when to be on hands and knees, when to be on belly, when to be on... That's it. And it's not permanent. You're not going to be able to get off the truck and and nozzle forward your way all the way. It has its time and place and application. That's it. Yeah. This is kind of the objective and you're going to have to move in and out of it throughout the call. The if this, then this mentality. And here's where you apply it. What challenges have you found through instructing? Like you, You mentioned people can challenge what you're offering, which is great. You're right. The more that happens, the more you're able to hone what you do and the more you can speak to it and the more that you can quantify it and clarify it, the more you know what you're passing down again and again and again is the best we have right now. And you're also a lot more comfortable when people do challenge things that you've heard that question before and you can address it. But what other challenges are you seeing maybe in the service around training and mentality and approach? There's a number of them. I think one is taking more 
ownership, as we talked about earlier, for training and mainly the basics, which are not so basic anymore, I think. So the big ones that, that we've discussed and I've heard you discuss them as well are simple things like pulling lines, doing searches, hose movement, body movement, throwing ladders, but throwing solo ladders, stuff like that. Stuff where you don't need any extra equipment than what's on your truck. You can do it at the hall. Just back to basics. I think it's coming around slowly to like more of an ownership culture. If something goes poorly at a call, it's going through my mind until we fix it. And if, if it was something that, that I did or we did as a crew, it's irrelevant. It's like you win as a team, you lose as a team, but it's like, okay, we, f- we face this challenge. How do we fix it? What are we going to do next time? Cause it's probably going to happen again, but I find ownership is kind of hit or miss in terms of some members, they expect training division to do everything. And we've taken the approach of that's not going to happen. It's probably never going to happen. So we got to stay sharp because the calls are still coming in. We still have to serve the customers. And at the end of the day, it's about them. It's not about me. If I want to complain about training all day, that's great. It might be a logistical block too, where it's just not even possible for them to meet all the demands. Correct. Yeah. But in terms of the basics, I personally think that's on us. If you're getting into more technical disciplines where maybe you need more resources or you need more time to, to do an evolution, that's where I think their role can come in. Maybe that's the place for the training division and the extra to add. Is that because we could get very frustrated that, well, these basics aren't being met for us. The last time I was in the tower, it was this many years ago. We last time we threw ladders was this many years ago, or I haven't touched one since recruit class. Yeah. And yet we're here doing this very technical training, like even just TR, technical rescue, yeah. or doing hazmat stuff. But those are high risk, low volumes. So you do need, to, and they're very technical. So you need to do that. But if we are all owning our basics training, then when we went to that more technical stuff, that's the fill-in or that's the extra, then it wouldn't seem like more of a place taker because we're already confident in our basics. So of course, when we go to specialized training, it can be specialized training. Is that fair? Yeah. And I see that as a big disconnect in a lot of the fire schooling, but specifically some of the college programs where they try to jam this absurd amount of material into a a very short time where that student may have only done that skill twice. And now you're, you're saying, tick that box that they're proficient at it. Yeah. Exposure versus learning. Yeah. And I think we would be better served in hammering, like hammering those basics where they have at least a method or two, not saying that the department they go to is going to do it that way, but at least they have a method or two in their pocket that they can be really proficient at. And if that department says, you know what, we don't do it that way, we do it this way, at least they have a good foundation. They probably understand whatever that deviation is, the minor variance, kind of that textbook versus reality in terms of the job. And they're also very limited to or by standards and what they have to, right? There's very much the, well, the JPRs have to be met. And then, well, then how do you do that? And how do you check everybody off on every single JPR, yet still give them time to drill on enough skills? So... It's a tough spot for academies and colleges to be in. Absolutely. Yeah. But I think, yeah, I think training is a, a massive challenge and it doesn't seem to matter who you talk to. It's just, that is a challenge of, of almost every department trying to find the time, trying to find the resources and do quality training and keep people engaged. Are you teaching at a college right now? 
passively, yes. Okay. Yeah, yeah. I kind of took off. I started before COVID for a few years and then took essentially most of COVID off. And I've done a handful of days this year. Hope to do some more. But I really enjoy, I was in the classroom briefly, which was awesome. But I enjoy the practical hands-on. And then you can get into a lot of the the tangents and the question asking. And again, that why. Why? Why do you want me in this position? Well, here, I'll show you. <laughs> I'll tell you. I'll show you. And if they want to try it, if there's time. It's like, yeah, give it a try. Whatever you're thinking, try it. We'll see how it works. Is there anything else that you're uh, interested in? maybe outside the fire service that you feel like you're learning that translates well into the fire service or into your ability to be a better firefighter? It's an easy term to throw out, but I think just leadership in general. I had a, a good friend and a colleague who introduced me to Jocko years ago. And I would like to think that I had that ownership mentality from the get-go. Maybe I did, maybe I didn't, but it sharpened it for sure. But just leadership in general and understanding your people and your organization. And I find a lot of times in terms of, I'll use the blanket term management, but the, the lack of communication is there in the sense of just, it's like, just talk to your people. Like just back to peer support. What do you need? What do you guys need? We need half an hour to do hose drills. Okay, let's make that happen. But I find there's this big disconnect in terms of chain of command as to expectations versus reality of what's going on on the floor versus what we think is going on on the floor. Or what the floor thinks is going on in administration, what's actually going on in administration. 100%. Right. Yeah. And so it's like a, the floor can get very entitled into, well, we need this, 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 and this. It's yeah. Like, yeah. Some of those things are literally not possible. <laughs> sure. Right? Yeah. So I think, is there that back and forth of that understanding of what you're able to ask for or what you need, what you should be asking for, what can actually be provided both ways? I remember reading an article. I couldn't tell you where the fire chief was from. I want to say it was uh, in the US, but he came from the floor. So he kind of understood it, but he would literally photocopy his budget numbers and put them out and be like, this is what I'm working with. I'm open to whatever, but this, I have to work in these constraints. And I was like, what a, what an amazing way to do it. Because when you're not crunching the numbers, it's very easy for us to say, well, just get us another saw. Exactly. Or just, yeah. Like the money just comes from like in money when you're in the fire service, <laughs> money doesn't exist. Yeah. So yeah. Just, just bring it, just have it show up. It's yeah. like, you don't understand that's, that's a half a million dollars for what you're asking for. <laughs> right. Would you say learning about leadership also, even if you don't want to be a leader can help you learn how to be a better follower or be led better. Right. And maybe learning a bit of how the administrative side of things work, even if you don't want to be an administrator, helps you understand what you expectations you can have of them. So you need to learn some things about levels above you because otherwise you're just acting out of ignorance and what you're saying doesn't yeah. hold any water. It's not living in reality. You're living in a fantasy in your head, which can be frustrating yeah. for both sides. I was fortunate to work with a captain who is now a platoon chief. And my captain right now is unbelievably amazing. And our crew that we've been with, we all were groomed under kind of three main people, but two in particular were really, really, really good at phenomenal leadership. And anytime something came down the pipe that traditionally would have been seen as negative, maybe it was a change in operations or an additional public service program or something, they really understood 
the power that they held just by having that rank. So at the time he was my captain and came down and rumors are already flying. Guys are getting fired up, sat us down. Just the way he did it was brilliant. But he's like, hey, I know you guys heard what's going on. It's going to happen. There's no way around it. We've asked, we've tried. It's going to happen. So we're going to do it. We're going to do it well. And it's going to be just another blip on the radar in our careers. And if anybody has any problems, let me know. We're going to do it together. And I'm going to do it as well. We're going to get through it. And it like you could watch the anxiety in the room drop. It just crushed everything. And to the point where now we are little messengers. You work a shift trade, you work on another hall or whatever. And guys are like, I can't believe it. And you're like, well, actually, <laughs> and you become that messenger in a good way of that's really good leadership to me. Not only are you towing the line the way it needs to be towed and getting things done when there is no deviation, but you're spreading that to other members who understand that and have the good communication. And now, again, you're setting them up for success, but now they're, it's just this cascade effect. Because we can be very much caught up in picking every battle. Yeah. Whereas that adage of like, choose your battles or pick your battles, or do you really want to die on this hill? Or if we pick every battle, we'll never get heard when it really matters. So learn when to and when not to, right? Exactly. And the other thing that jumps out at me as you're saying that too, is the only way that you can hold another party accountable is if you're doing everything you should be doing at your level. So if we choose to back off and say, well, we're going to let this fail and we're going to do the bare minimum A, A, B, and C, then you're not able to point the finger because you're not holding your end of the bargain up. Exactly. Which doesn't seem fair sometimes. Like, why are we doing all the things we should do? Right. But you have to do that in order to question the other party. And it goes both ways. So administration can hold people accountable if they're living up to exactly what they should be doing. So it was such a brilliant way. And I, I watched it on multiple occasions. And now it's funny because they've been promoted, some have retired, and they created a culture on our particular crew that it's it's there. It's cemented. And if we get a new member in, guess what cast you're getting thrown into? <laughs> Hopefully the good leadership one. But yeah, it's crazy. Some one or two individuals can really, if they know what they're doing and understand the communication, they can have a huge amount of change. And you mentioned Jocko too, a recent thing I've seen him putting out is the idea of good, as in like, this is a massive problem that just happened. He's like, good. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. For, as that perspective, yeah. right? Yeah. Like welcome. That's right, yeah. Oh great, we'll have more time to now do what? this. Yeah. Like, now we'll have the opportunity to do this. And yeah. I mean, obviously you can take that to an extreme and you shouldn't just be able, you know, just shouldn't just be taking it on the, in the face. Like there's sometimes you have to draw a line and say, this needs to be addressed. This isn't a good thing. But again, it's a little bit of perspective shift. Yeah. We just started mandatory station rotations for three months at a time for a trial. And I remember seeing the email and I was like, oh man, like for like 15 seconds. And I was like, okay, where's the positive here? I was like, okay, I get to learn a new area. I'm like, we won't be as busy so we can train way more. I'm like, this is good. This is a good thing. This is perfect. And same thing, we sat down as a crew and be like, yeah, you know what, it kind of sucks, but we'll get through it. Here's the opportunities that we can capitalize on. I love the approach too of uh, let yourself get really upset for five minutes. Yeah. <laughs> just let, just lose your mind for five minutes, but then you know when the five minutes is done, then you need to address it. Yeah. Yeah. Right? And then even with the moving thing, right? No one wants to pack up all their stuff and it's always like, oh God. 
But then once you get there and you settle in and you're with different people for a bit and you're catching up and you're like, it's just, and you have, you could have a great shift. Yeah. Let yourself grumble on the way there, but shake it off. Don't bring it into the house and like settle in and then it's fine, right? It's going to be a blip on the radar. Absolutely. Yeah. Perspective yeah. really matters. <laughs> <laughs> We're our own worst enemies. Oh yeah. Anything else you want to cover before we wrap things up? Just briefly, I guess our experience with a peer support team, we've had some really good successes and we seem to be moving in the right direction. And I can only base that on, I guess, talking to other people from other departments. And there's been some some heavy hitters on your podcast. We've had the fortunate experience to pair up with a psychologist who oversees the team. And it's been a game changer in terms of being professional and offering up-to-date best practice service where we now have someone who specifically works in that industry day in, day out. You have an expert that you can lean on to be like, is this, is this the right path? Yes, no. It's been a phenomenal resource. So I would encourage, I realize it's not realistic for every department, but in some capacity, if you can pair that service with a professional, it's a huge game changer. How are people going to reach out to you if they want to? Where can they find you? You don't need to give a cell phone number or anything. (laughs) It's funny. We've been talking about different social media stuff, but I'm old school. I just have face. You can try Facebook, but I'll throw my email. It's Higgins, H-I-G-G-I-N-S, and then SD at Hotmail.com. Awesome. Yeah. Thanks for your time today. Thank you so much. Mm